the United States of Horror may contain some graphic or explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Are we going to do this, or? Yeah, sorry, I'll just take it a second. <laughs> it's okay, the audience can wait. Are we recording? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, they can get over himself. <laughs> just going to get it done. Get it done, get, get it done. done. So we're recording this in the past. Past or the future? We, yeah, wait, what? Back to the future? We're back to the future. Back to the past. Back again. again, again Guess who's back. back. Baby got back. Tell a friend. Did you guys subscribe to our Patreon? Did, Did you, you get a free shirt or a free mask? Did you share our stuff? Did you like us? Did you like us? Did you just submit your stories? Did you do any of that? No? Okay, no, we'll pause this not. episode. Go back. Email us. After you've subscribed to our Patreon to get your free shirt. And then... Share the episodes. Leave a review. Do 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 what you're told. No, Kaylee, you can't <laughs> do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can do whatever you want. I don't care what you guys do. We just appreciate you listening. Yes. Honestly, this at the such... end of the day, we do this because we have fun and it's something that we enjoy anyway. And if we can make at least one or two people laugh, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. We have fun. We, we... can laugh at each other. You can yeah. laugh with us, at us. Mm-hmm. So, the world is crazy. We just needed some time to just talk about some crazy stuff. Yes. I wanted to just listen to urban legends and paranormal stories and stuff about true crime and not have to worry about everything that was going on in the world and i couldn't find a podcast that wouldn't just stick to the topics and yeah, so even though we don't ever do it either well i mean at least we're not talking about you know real world events you know the stressful stuff like i do this to escape i listen to podcasts to you escape. just hear me rant about stupid stuff you can laugh at so, so. if that's what we are for you then and welcome Sorry. <laughs> I'm Jeff. I'm Kaylee. And we are... The United States of Horror. horror. <laughs> I made you say it. It's fine. I'm used to carrying this podcast on my Some, back. Someone has to. I'm, <laughs> I don't do it. Brenton sure did it. Oh, second time roasting him. In Be nice to him. <laughs> nice to my Just kidding, man. Brenton. If you're listening, we miss you. He's part of the B-Squad, because Brenton. B-Squad? You know, the squad that doesn't count anymore oh jeff oh. that's meaner than what i said back up brenton back up brenton no, anyway we do miss him we're trying do you to guys get, miss him we're trying to get him back on a special episode so he's been so busy though it's hunting season for him he's, he's a dad she has to take care of the kids he's a busy man he has to take he's care got of a family heart. to take care of yeah take care of my heart <laughs> anyway go breaking my heart as you can see, we're in West Virginia today. We're getting closer. West Virginia. To being done. Do you guys know what that means? Um, we're going to be done forever? Well, no, not forever. You mean end of season one? We're going to go through the states again because there's so many stories that we could have done to start with. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited we because need, there's yeah. a lot of states where I couldn't be- choose between a few people. There were major big ones big stories that i skipped over specifically because i knew that it was going to take a whole episode or you want to save it for a special time so we get to circle back especially like california ones or arizona ones california would be like a a whole entire series honestly we could but anyway anyway so i think am i going first this time no i think it's my turn are you sure i'm pretty sure okay go ahead okay fine okay anyway go ahead (laughs) Uh, okay, so I have a somewhat well-known, pretty well-known story that I'm going to be covering. Okay. I'm going to be talking about the Sodder children. Ooh. Yes. So I'm just going to jump into it because there's a lot of details, and I know you have a very interesting story, right? I have, I actually have one and a half. One and a half. I have, I have two, but one of them's like half, so, so. Have no context. Good. <laughs> Good. 
Who, who is? Me? Me. Ish. Kind of. Soon. Almost. Almost. So, the disappearance of the Sodder children. Uh, I'm going to jump into it, like I said. On Christmas Eve, December 24th of 1945, a fire destroyed the Sodder home in Fayetteville, West Virginia, United States. At the time, it was occupied by George Sodder, his wife, Jean- Jenny, Jenny, uh, and nine of their ten children. Nine of ten? Yeah, that's a lot of kids. No wonder they had a fire. <laughs> what? What? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Because their love was so... Inf- I don't know what I'm saying. Burning love. Burning love. Anyway. During the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children escaped. The bodies of the other five children have never been found. The Sodder believe... Uh, the Sodders believed for the rest of their lives that the five missing children survived. Interesting. Yeah. It's very interesting. There's a lot of different... S- Takes? uh facets to this story and i'm gonna try and do like the best detailed short version if that makes sense okay um so for the rest of his life george as he came to be known would not talk much about why he had left his homeland Sauter eventually found work on the railroads in pennsylvania carrying water and other supplies to workers after a few years he took a more permanent work took on more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. A few more years after that, he started his own trucking company, at first hauling fill dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in the region. Jenny Cipriani, a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers, who was also... Cipriani. who also immigrated from Italy in her childhood, became George's wife. I should be able to say that because I'm Italian. It's a Cipriani, Jenny Cipriani. Cipriani. With the bees and bots and the, <laughs> the Mario. My family's original name is Maza. So don't Maza call me. Tough? No, Maza. Maza go? Shut up. The couple settled outside nearby nearby Fayetteville, which is a large population of Italian immigrants in two-story timber frame houses two miles north of town. You say timber in. I'm joking. Tim- what? I'm joking. Oh. You said timber. Timber, not timber. <laughs> Just trying to make funny jokes, guys. I'm not it was funny. hilarious. In 1923, they had the first of their ten children. George's business prospered, and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around. In the words of one local official. So, it's not like they were just run-of-the-mill. Like, they were pretty well-known. However, George had strong opinions about many subjects and was not shy about expressing them, sometimes alienating people. In particular, his strident opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. The last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943, and by then, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. So this gives you the time frame and kind of era. Yeah. The following year, Mussolini was deposed and executed. However, George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings. In October of 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman, often being rebuffed, warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed, attributing this all to the dirty remarks you have been making up about Mussolini. So he was, in fact, very... Outspoken. Yeah, I mean, like, this particular threat against his life was very ominous and... The fact that it was so specific, especially after everything happened, makes you look back and think, hmm. Yeah. (sighs) Did he go back? Another visitor to the house, ostensibly seeking work, took the occasion to go around the back and warn George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. So, George was puzzled by this observation since he had just had the house rewired when an electric stove was installed and the local electric company had said afterwards that it was safe. So Mm. that was also something that was kind of like looking back, it was strange. 
In the weeks before Christmas that year, George's older son had noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town. Its occupants watched the young Sodder children as they returned from school. The Sodders celebrated Christmas Eve in 1945. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store, dime store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger si- sisters, Martha, who was 12, Jenny, her youngest sister, and Martha, oh, Jenny, eight, and Betty, five, with new toys she had bought them as gifts. The young children were s- so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their usual bedtime. At 10 p.m., Jenny told them that they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys, who were still awake, 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother, Luis, remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. George and the two oldest boys, John, 23, and George, Jr., 16, who had spent the day working with their father, were already asleep. After the remaining... After reminding the children of those remaining chores, she took Sylvia, who was two, upstairs with her and went to bed together. The telephone rang at 12.30 a.m. Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer it. The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with, and the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Interesting. Very interesting. Jenny told the caller that she had reached a wrong number, later recalling that the woman's recalling the woman's weird laugh. Jenny hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. Two things the children normally attend to when they stayed up late later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed the other children who stayed up later had gone back up to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and returned to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny was again awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof roof with a loud bang, then rolling noise. So a lot of strange events. Yeah. Different things were happening that she can look back and say, okay, that's not normal. Which, have you ever been startled awake by a really loud noise? Yeah, and you like you think you know you heard something, but it's... yeah, you're like trying to decide whether it was part of a dream or not, or maybe it was one of the kids, like yeah, you know, coming up down from the attic or something. Exactly, and then you take that like few moments to kind of decipher, like, okay, is anything else happening? Is this worth waking up anybody else? Maybe it was an hour or something. Maybe you have to like talk yourself down from the anxiety that you feel. Yeah. I totally understand that feeling. So after hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep. After another half hour, she woke again, smelling smoke. When she got up again, she found that the room George used for an office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke him up, and he in turn woke up his older sons. Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs, but heard no response. They could not go up there as the stairway itself had already was already aflame. So they were yelling for them and... They weren't answering. Which, maybe they could have lost consciousness already if there was enough smoke. Yeah, they bring it in already. But, or, you never know. Yeah. Oh, what All I know is this sounds really bad, mm-hmm. but if I was a younger brother, mm-hmm. I would have gone in and tried it anyway. Yeah, but if the stairs were literally on fire... You can try to grab a ladder and try to go up the... Like, I don't know. I would have tried more, but maybe... I I, yeah, I don't I guess, know. I think it all depends on the it, situation. Yeah, it, like we kind of talked about last week. You never know how you're going to respond in those situations. Yeah. So. Uh, John's, John said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there, though he later changed his story, story to say that he could that he only called up there and did not actually see them. Efforts to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone did not work, so Marion ran to a neighbor's to call the fire department. A driver on the nearby road was also seen, had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. They were, too, were unsuccessful, either because they could not reach the operator or because the phone there turned out to be broken. So very strange things. Yeah. So either the neighbor 
or the passing motorist was eventually successful reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of town. So either they didn't decipher whether who who it was. Yeah, but still, it took them a long time to be yeah. able to call. So George Barefoot climbed the wall and broke open the attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use the ladder to the attic to rescue the other children. It was not in its usual spot resting against the house and could not be found anywhere nearby. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. So George then tried to pull both trucks he used for his business up to the house and use them to climb to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly during the previous day. So it's like every single thing that he tried to do to try and save his kids, it was just like faltering. Yeah. Frustrated, the six sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. I cannot even fathom what they were feeling in those moments. Yeah. That had to have been devastating as a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, whatever. So sad. They assumed the other five children had perished in the blaze. The fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. Oh, man. Yeah. Chief F.J. Morris, my last name is Morris for just a few more weeks, said the next day that he already, that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. Which, how are you the chief? <laughs> you can't drive the fire truck, but whatever. The firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could do little but look through the ashes that were left in the Sodders' basement. By 10 a.m., Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones, as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It was also noted by the modern fire professionals that their search was curious, cursory at best. So you have different accounts. And of course, yeah. when it's a story this old, it's hard to tell like what's real and, real and what's like an urban legend that's, you know, ended up uh, coming out of it. Yeah. So nevertheless, Morris believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Morris, to Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, George and his wife could not bear the site anymore. So he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of covering it to converting it to a memorial garden for the lost children, which, which is, I, I'm he's not sure. grieving. You so, can't really say much about a grieving father. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. That's so weird. Yeah, it is a little weird. Like, I understand why I, I understand how he could do that, but still, if they're saying there's an investigation, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. The local coroner con convened an inquest the next day, which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Among the jurors was a man who had threatened George that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini anti remarks. Among the jurors. Mm. That's messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th. The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all the bodies had been found, but then later in the same story, reporting that only part of one body was recovered. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2nd of 1946, although their surviving children did, which is understandable. Yeah. I, honestly, funerals are hard. Especially for children. Yes. Especially for children. And especially because you don't have bodies. And five children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially baby children. I know. It's really sad. 
So not long afterwards, as they began to rebuild their lives, the Sodders started to question all the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by electrical problems, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have gone out, which is a fair assessment. Yeah. Then they found the ladder that had been missing on the side uh, from the side of the house on the night of the fire at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. So that's also extremely strange. Why all of a sudden that freaking bag of paper keeps scaring me. It looks like a freaking face. Okay, I'm good. Why all of a sudden is it just gone that night of yeah. all nights? You and know? down there 75 feet away. Yeah. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone light had not been burned through through in a fire as they had initially thought, but it was cut by someone who had been willing to climb 14 feet up to a pole and reach two feet away from it to do so. So it was cut in a very odd place as yeah. well. Uh, a man whom the neighbors had been stealing a black and tackle a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested. So there was a thief in the area. Yeah. He had admitted to the theft and claimed that he had been the one to cut the phone line thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire, which again, it could have everything to do with it. Yeah. He could have done it, but it's also just a really weird coincidence. If it is a coincidence. So, however, no records identifying the suspect exists and why he would have wanted to cut any utility lines to the solder house while stealing the block and tackle has ever been explained. So, a lot of questions surrounding that. Jenny said in 1968, if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with their other four children, would never have been able to make it out of the house. Which... Well, you can turn on the power. Like we, they probably were turn on the light to get out and yeah, do other stuff. And the Christmas lights were on, so yeah. Jenny had trouble accepting Morris's beliefs that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Of course, so many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. So, if those things still remained. Why wouldn't there be bones? At least bones or teeth or something. Because even in cremation, they have to use extremely high levels of heat. heat. Yeah. And a typical, like, fire doesn't burn that hot. Yeah. Unless there's other elements involved. She contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar, similar house fire that she read around the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case. Interesting. Jenny burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed. None ever were. So she went straight up like scientific method on it. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, I don't blame her. You have to find a way to... Test the theories. Yeah, and to just deal with your grief in your own way. An employee of a local crematorium told... Uh, she contracted, told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what we just talked about, for two hours for longer and hotter than the house fire could have ever been. Yeah, so. Yeah. They said for 45 minutes to an hour, so. Yeah. The Sodders truck's failure to start was also considered. George believed they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. Which could have been. He also could have taken the ladder down the embankment and then decided, like, it was too much work. <laughs> or he was probably trying to break in and steal something, saw something wasn't right, and had to leave. And just Potentially, threw it. yeah. He could have had a partner or something. Could have. However, one of his son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that Sauter and his sons might have, in their haste to start the trucks, flooded the engines. Which is also an option. Yeah. Some accounts have suggested the wrong number phone call to Sauter's house may have also somehow been connected to the fire and disappearance of the children. However, investigators later located the woman who made the call. She confirmed it had been a wrong number on her part. So as spring approached, the Sauters, as they had said they would, planted flowers 
in the soil bulldozed over the house. Jenny tended it carefully and carefully for the rest of her life, which is so sad. Yeah. However, further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's belief that the children they were that the children they were memorializing might in fact be alive somewhere. Evidence emerged which supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical fault and that it was instead set deliberately. The driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. Which, why is he coming out about that now? But well, if, well it depends if he's a, what kind of bus driver for a local area. Maybe it's for like a traveling one across country. That's true. And all stuff, so. How could he have known? Yeah. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in a bush nearby. George recalled his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other indiscary device used in combat. Uh incendiary device used in combat my bad the family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion the fire had started on the roof although by then there was no way to prove it because it burnt to the ground other witnesses claimed to have seen children the children themselves one woman who had been watching the fire from the road said she had seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning which that could have just been people driving by to see what was going on. Yeah, nosy people. That happens. <laughs> Another woman at rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted their presence, the presence of a car with a Florida license plate in the rest stop's parking lot as well. The Sodders eventually hired a private investigator named Cece Tinsley from the nearby town of Gowley Bridge to look into the case. Tinsley learned that the insurance salesman who had threatened them with a five with a fire a year before over George uh, George's anti-Mussolini sentiments had been on the cor- coroner's jury wow on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident and told this to the Sodders. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried, which... That's really That's That's so sketchy. Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George. George and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him with this news. Morris agreed to show them where he had buried the metal box and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director, who after examining it, told them in reality it was fresh beef liver and had never been exposed to fire. Hmm. So it's like, why is he lying about that? And why in the heck did he put beef liver in a lockbox and bury it and tell... Like, there's so many questions. So many questions. (laughs) I don't understand, but it's fine. Later, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had afterwards admitted the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally. He had supposedly placed it there in the hope that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. Which, who knows if that's true. And why? If it was in a, that's in like a, a really elaborate plan. Yeah, and like, I don't know about you, but if I found a box with a heart or something in it, mm-hmm. I would be like, oh, that's where it happened. They're just in a hearts in a box. It's okay now. That's like I, the, that would be more questions. The evil queen's minion on a Once Snow White. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. George did not wait for report sightings to come in. Sometimes he made them himself. After seeing a girl in a magazine picture of young ballet dancers in New York City he looked that, who looked like one of his missing daughters, Betty, he drove all the way to the girl's school where he repeated demands to see the girl himself. Oh, where his repeated demands to see the girl himself were refused. Which, yeah, if some random ass guy comes to school and is like, let me see her. 
That's maybe my daughter. <laughs> That's uh, weird. I'm your dad. He also tried to interest the FBI in investigating what he considered a kidnapping. Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letter. Although I would like to be of service, he wrote, the matter related appeared to be of local character and does not come within the investigation's investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Which is kind of messed up. That's sad. I mean, you could have at least send one but person just to ask questions. It could have been like... A kidnapping of maybe potentially yeah. five or six children. But you never know like what kind of manpower they had. It was around the war and, and who knows. Yeah. If the local authorities requested the Bureau's assistance, he added, he would, of course, direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments declined to do so. In August of 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt in, at the house site. After a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae. The new bone fragments were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute. They were confirmed to be the lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. Since the traverse recessed are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years old, Newman's report said. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still infused. Thus, given the age range, it was not very likely to be the bones, that these bones were from any of the five missing children since the oldest, Maurice, had been 14 at the time. Although the report allowed that the vertebrae of a boy his age sometimes were advanced enough to appear to be at a lower end of the range. So... It could have been. It could have been. The 14-year-old. But, you know, Newman added the bone, that the bones showed no sign of exposure to flame. That also made it yeah, really strange. But being buried for all that time, I don't know. It's just really weird. It's too, too bad they don't have, like... Testing now for DNA stuff, testing. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they did. Further, he agreed that it was very strange for those bones were the only ones found since a wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons of all the children behind. The report concluded that the vertebrae had instead most likely come from the dirt that George had bulldozed over the site. Which is even sketchier, in my opinion. <laughs> Later, Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but could not explain how they would have been taken from there or how they came to be on the fire site. The Smithsonian returned the bone fragments to George in September of 1949. According to its record, their current location is unknown. So... Too oh bad my. they can't do DNA. Yeah. The investigation on its findings attracted national attention at this point, and the West Virginia legislature had two hearings on the case in 1950. So a few, few years later. Yeah. Afterwards, however, Governor Oakley L. Pattinson, Pattinson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sauter the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. With the end of official efforts to resolve the case, the Sodders did not give up hope. So they were pretty relentless. They had flyers printed up with pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward, soon doubled, for information that would have settled the case for even one of them. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of the house and alongside the U.S. Route 60 near Anstead with some information. It would in time become a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville, Fayetteville on U.S. Route 19. The family's efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. 
Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran the Charleston Hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards. So these kinds of people kind of complicate the whole thing. I hate to say it, but you can't rely on people's memories, especially way after the fact. Yeah. It's so easy to use the power of suggestion to create false memories. And we've talked about this a lot. And mm-hmm. I firmly believe that just by suggesting something, you you can establish this backstory that potentially never happened. Especially if you see it in a newspaper on TV. Yeah. And you're like, well, I was kind of by that. And I think I recognize just yeah. one of them. Oh, yeah. And that one had that dress because you saw it in the TV mm-hmm. picture. And- well, it's just like to put it. Like, super simply, it's like whenever you are craving a certain thing that you haven't had in a long time, and it's been forever. Chick-fil-A. And you finally have it, and it's like, oh, this doesn't taste as good as I remembered. Yeah. It's because you amp it up in your head. You, like, elaborate on it. Anyway. She said, I do not remember the exact date, she said in a statement. The children had come in around midnight, and two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of Italian extraction... When she attempted to speak with the children, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators today do not, however, consider her story credible as she had only seen photos of the children two years after the fire, five years before she came forward. Yeah, so. So, yeah. George followed up uh, leads in person, traveling to areas from where tips had come. A woman in St. Louis, Missouri, claimed that Martha was being held in a covenant there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have heard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. So very, like, cryptic. Like, yeah. Yeah. None of these proved significant. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to this, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. So seriously relentless. In 1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police there were unable to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Or sorry, police there were able to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said years later that Doubts about the denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. Mm. I feel so bad for him. That's so sad. I know. But and he, like, he looked up and followed up every single lead. He did more than the police ever did. Yeah. But there was also reports that apparently could have been inside with him. Hmm? I heard a story about him. That he, him, he did it. That he's the one who did it. He's the one who did it. Because he couldn't pay for everything, and oh, he, so he set the fire, and yeah, he and he wanted the intentions that way. He could eventually think of the long term. Yeah, thing. another letter that they received the year that year brought the Sodders brought the Sodders what they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. On the day Jenny found, one day Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky with no return address. Inside was a picture of a young man around 30, which features, with features strongly resembling Lewis's, who would have been in his 30s if he had survived. On the back was written, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. Little boys, I don't know. <laughs> Numbers or 35. 90132 or 35. Yeah, that, they, they, I remember hearing about that on the um, BuzzFeed. They think it's like a prison number or something. Prison number, yeah. Yeah. The family hired another private detective to go to Central City and look into the missive, but he never reported back to the Sodders, and they were unable to locate him afterwards. So, that PI took off with their money, essentially, which is yeah. sad. 
The picture nonetheless gave them hope. They added it to the billboard, leaving Central City out of it and any other publishment published information out of fear that Louis might come to harm and put on enlargement of it put an enlargement of it over the fireplace. George admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail late the next day that the lack of information had been like hunting like hitting a brick wall. We can't go any further. He nevertheless vowed to continue. Time is running out for us, he admitted in another interview around that time, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. George Sauter died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about that night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept it and get on with their lives, continue to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended the garden at the site of the former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took the weathered, worn billboard down. Which is so sad. That is really sad. It is so sad. The surviving Sauter children, joined by their own children, continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with the older Fayetteville residents, also theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George, and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house. They were possibly taken back to Italy. So there's a lot of theories. Yeah. If the children had survived all those years and were aware their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes that they may have avoided contacting them in order to keep them safe from harm, which could be true, could not. But as of 2015, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest in the family, is the only surviving Sauter sibling who was in the house the night of the fire, which she says is her earliest memory. I was the last one of the kids to leave the home, she recalled in the Gazette Mail in 2013. She and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. I experienced their grief for a long time. She still believes her siblings survived that night and quietly assists with efforts to find them and publicizes the case. Her daughter said in 2006, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die and she would do everything she could. And here we are today talking about it, so. That's, wow. That's, yeah. That's amazing. And BuzzFeed's done stuff about it. I mean. Yeah, there was a history. Um, yeah. Episode on it and Unsolved Murders, all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. In the 21st century, these efforts have come to include online forums like websleuths.com, in addition to media coverage, like what we just discussed. The increase in the latter has led some to examine some who have examined the case to believe that, that the children did, in fact, die in 1945. So George Bragg, a local author who wrote about the case in 2012, uh, the book's called West Virginia's Unsolved Murders, believes that John was telling the truth in his original account when he said he tried to physically awaken his siblings before fleeing the house. He allows that the conclusion may still not be correct. Logic tells you they probably did burn up in the fire, but you can't always go by logic. And then Stacy Horn, who did a segment of the case for National Public Radio around its 60th anniversary in 2005, also believes the children's death in the fire is the most plausible solution. Which it makes the most sense. Yeah. Well, they didn't find anything, though. I know. In a contemporaneous post on her blog with material she had cut from her story for the time... She noted the fire had continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed and the two hours was not enough time to search the ash, and ash thoroughly. Even if it had been, the firefighters may not have known what to look for. However, she said, there is enough genuine weirdness about the whole thing that if someday it is learned what the children, that the children did not die in the fire, I won't be shocked. Wow. So, I know that was a lot. <laughs> I think they were kidnapped. It's hard to say. I think that they probably died. 
honestly. But just like they say, you can't always trust logic. Even if it's the most logical, it might not be true. Yeah. So. Thank you, Keely. Yeah, you're welcome. That was a long one. I know it was a lot. Do you think we have enough time to go my main one or should I just do my little one? Um, maybe you can do your little one and then we can save the big one for next time. Next time. Yeah. Awesome. Which it's a really good one. So it'll, we, we could do like a part two. Yeah, we could, t- we could. Potentially. Because, yeah, we could. You think so? I think. I you think, think you have enough for a part two? Um. Whole episode? Mm. Or we could just save it for next season. We can save it for next season. Okay. That's fine. That works. That way, give him a little teaser. Teaser. Just tease you a little bit. Tease. I'm a little tease. You're a little tease. You are. I'm a dirty little tramp. (laughs) What? Great. So, now that you did your story... Now that you did your story, Kaylee, Mm -hmm. it's my turn. What? So, my story is the trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Ooh. Lewis Company. Uh-huh. The Trans Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, previously known as the Weston State Hospital, mm. is a former psychiatric hospital located in Lewis County. It is allegedly haunted by former patients. Oh, no. Construction of the hospital was authorized by the Virginia General Assembly and began in late 1858. The, the building construction was halted by the Civil War in 1861. Mm-hmm. The building is the largest hand-cut stone masonry in the nation. Oh, wow. It's beautiful. Is it? I can't wait to see pictures. The asylum opened in 1864 and was operated by the West Virginia government. It was originally designed to hold 250 patients, but at its peak of more than 2,400 patients. No, I hate that. Yeah. Just like 10 times more than I was supposed to. No big deal, right? I can't say I'm, a su- I'm surprised. I feel like that happened with most asylums. Yeah, especially back then. Because they threw just literally anyone. just anyone in there. If they had physical ailments, even if they were criminally insane, even if they were just a woman who was PMSing, essentially. Yeah. You had a guy, a guy with a cold. Oh, the end of the world. <laughs> uh, dude, calm down. You have it. Oh, it's so blue. sad. Yeah. So... In 1871, the famous clock tower was completed. The grounds total acreage finished at 666 acres. Oh, no. Due to changes in psychiatric care, as well as poor building conditions, the hospital closed in 1994. In 2007, the WV Department of Health... WV Department. (laughs) Okay, do you do you? It's a WV. West Virginia <laughs> Department of Health and Human Resources auctioned the building. Joe Jordan purchased the building. So this guy bought that. Imagine buying an asylum. That's that old. Imagine. That's, that's I'll be awesome. Yeah. So today paranormal activity is often reported. Multiple TV shows such as Ghost Stories and Travel Channels. Ghost, Ghost Adventures. Adventures. Yay. We love Zach Baggins. No, I love Aaron. We love Aaron. I love Jay. He's actually my favorite. Jay is my favorite. He's the best. Yeah. Anyway. I think Zach's worse. <laughs> He's going to get angry at me. Fight me. Please yeah, because Zach Baggins is going to listen to this. Okay. I'm Zach Baggins. <laughs> I never believed in ghosts until I came face to face with one. And now I have a haunted house, we, which is really Honestly, cool. we're not haters. We watch it religiously, so... Uh, not religiously. You do, not okay, me. Okay, I, I do. I'm skeptical of all that. Whatever. So anyway, you know, Ghost Adventures mm-hmm. have filmed episodes from inside the asylum. Guided tours of the buildings are available, and you can even spend the night inside the building. Shut up. That would be so fun. Imagine sleeping in an old, insane asylum room. That would be terrifying, just like that sound that I heard. And it probably was a bomb or a fire thing. Don't say that. They talked about the kids missing and now they're coming the for ki- us. It was the kittens. They're going to take our cat kids. <gasps> I would kill them. They'll come back. We don't want this anymore. <laughs> I would burn down in the house before I let my cats die in the fire. So, yeah. I would go down with the ship to save my kittens. Uh, yeah, me too. Anyway. But, yeah. You want to know why I love West Virginia? 
West Virginia. What? Um, one of the games I play. Uh huh. Takes place in West Virginia. Oh really? Which one? Uh, Fallout seventy six. Oh, does it? Hmm. Oh, interesting. The Appalachian Mountains and everything. Oh, oh, that's out there. Yeah. And that's why there's a lot of cool geography, <laughs> ur- urban legends, and cool stories out there. And oh, they have yeah. a they have a prison that's based off of this. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. There's a particular cryptid that we're going to talk about next time. Y'all yeah. know, but if you know, you know. But if you don't, then you'll find out. Yeah, which I'm excited to talk about. I I'm love so excited. That topic. I can't wait. Maybe we can make a special episode for that. I maybe we will. Yeah, maybe we might. That's that's what we might do. So, anyway, thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you. And I appreciate myself oh, more. Oh, wait. Hold on. What? We have what? We have a weird Guess law? Guess what? It's illegal to beat your wife so long... Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. I messed it up. It's legal to beat your wife so long as it is done in public, on Sunday, and on the courthouse steps. So, save all your anger up during the week so kaylee and wait until sunday kaylee let's go to the courthouse on sunday to get married no for a knuckle <laughs> sandwich square up you know you didn't want to make me a sandwich i won't give you one now <laughs> square I'm up looking forward to it no she'll beat my butt guys <laughs> okay Anyway, anyway. Uh, interesting. Sorry, yeah. interesting law, Kaylee. Yeah, did you like that? I did actually. And uh, how D- can please, you find- please don't beat your wives. Yeah, please. Or don't. husbands, or anybody. Except murderers and pedophiles. Hugs. Kill Hugs, the pedophiles. Not drugs. Kill I mean, pe- what? What? Kill, kill the pet. What? Kill the pedophiles. Oh goodness gracious. Um, anyway, I'm how tired. can you find us, Kaylee? If you wanted to send in your personal paranormal stories for our season finale, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you can do so. By emailing us, it's unitedstatesofhorror at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media. All of our social media is linked below, but we are most active on Instagram. That's at unitedstatesofhorror. And then if you wanted to listen and share and like and subscribe, do all that. Leave a five-star rating below or above or wherever it is and tell us what you think. Yeah. Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, all, all that, that stuff. All that good stuff. Make me famous. <laughs> That's a band. I know. Oh. One of my favorites. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, guys. Thank you. for listening. And uh, please be safe out there. Yes, please. And uh, love each other. Give, give each other uh, COVID-friendly... Elbow bumps? Elbow bumps. Maybe. <laughs> Air high fives. Air high fives. Just spread cheer as much as possible. Speaking of cheer, it's coming up for Christmas soon. Oh my goodness gracious. So, oh goodness. Thanksgiving is coming? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Is it like right around the corner? It's right around the corner, Kaylee. And also, you know what else is right around the corner? Death. We're getting married soon. Okay, I don't think they want to hear about that, Kaylee. I want to hear about it. Okay, okay. fine. All right, we'll, we'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> All right, guys. Enjoy your time. Okay, bye. Enjoy the next 24 hours. Bye. <laughs> Is that all they have to live? We'll see. Oh, God.